Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hi, I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, and welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. Today's podcast is the first of three in a series about eating disorders and about how we can perhaps change the paradigm about feeding children. Dr. Michaela Voss is my first guest. She graduated from medical school from the University of Kansas Medical Center in 2010 and completed a pediatric internship and residency in 2013 at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Afterwards, she pursued advanced training in the field of adolescent medicine, graduating from fellowship in 2016 at Seattle Children's Hospital. During this time, Dr. Voss was a leadership and education in adolescent health fellow and participated in research under a T32 grant. Currently, Dr. Voss is the medical director of the Eating Disorder Center at Children's Mercy in Kansas City. In addition to her clinical and administrative duties, Dr. Voss enjoys educating medical professionals and the general community about adolescent health and eating disorders. She participates in multiple research and quality improvement projects to expand evidence-based medical knowledge of eating disorders. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Michaela Voss. Hi, Michaela. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for inviting me today. Oh, I'm so delighted to have you. And this is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart for lots of different reasons. And I'm really excited to share your perspective and expertise with listeners because I, I think this is a hard area for primary care and, and really inpatient care, anybody who deals with kids and weight and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. can you just, as we start out, just talk a little bit about your journey into pediatrics and how did you get into, you know, a focus on eating disorders? Yeah, sure. So I was the kid that said, I'm never going to be a doctor. Not me, not me. And I actually graduated and became a chemist for about four years. And that route kind of led me into development of pharmaceuticals and through a lot of soul searching. And as you things you do in your 20s, I realized that doctoring really was a perfect fit for me. So went to med school and I quickly realized I like treating more preventative and reaching kids before they have the change rather than trying to undo the unhealthy changes as an adult. Um, so I went down pediatrics, but really my true passion is with those adolescent population because they're right at that sweet spot where you can really make a difference. You're no longer really focusing with the parent, you're focusing with the child, and but yet you've caught them early enough where they haven't done a lot of behavior, um, health changes that are habits, they're brand new, so you can make a huge change. So I actually did an adolescent medicine fellowship over in Seattle. And through there, I just naturally 
found myself gravitating towards the eating disorder patients. It was a natural fit for my brain and and the way I could help them. And so there was a need in my hometown for that. And it just all came together. So here I am. (laughs) I think pediatrics is well suited to prevention. I think I was drawn to it for some of the same reasons I did Mm -hmm. internal medicine. I'm like, how do I undo all this stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. like, let's just start upstream. and, And I think that's what pediatricians are really good at. And I agree. I love working with teens and young adults. I, I just, I don't know. There's just something about their own internal insights and motivations to be the people they're going to be. So um, I think they're a great little group and I know I a lot too. of pediatricians don't, but that's okay. That's why we've got me. <laughs> well, and there's room for like all me. of us. Yeah. And it sure. seems like a lot of people in eating disorder world also come from adolescent medicine training, Kind yeah, of seems like a natural do. fit. Mm-hmm. It is definitely part of our fellowship. So we definitely get a lot of education in that area. So before we dive in, I just want to make sure we have a little bit of terminology because there are some things that I think are very familiar. I think if you said, you know, what is anorexia? I think most pediatricians, pediatric clinicians would have a pretty good idea and binge eating disorders. But then there's this sort of whole notion of disordered eating orthorexia, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. ARFID, which mm-hmm. I think I knew what it was, but I didn't know it was a thing. So maybe you could just kind of talk a little sure. bit about some of those other terms that we might not be familiar with. Yeah. So really the big change happened when the DSM-5 came out from the DSM-4. And what they did was previously there was the the classic, the anorexia nervosa, the binge eating disorder. Well, the binge eating wasn't there, but bulimia nervosa, and kind of your rumination and your little kid disorders. And then you had this eating disorder, not otherwise specified. And that included this huge umbrella of things. And so what the DSM-5 did was they tried to break that down and be a little more specific to not only help with research and outcome data, but to help with treatment modalities. And so out, out of that came binge eating disorder. That was a new one, even though we all knew it existed, they finally defined it. And then ARFID is another one. And that stands for avoidant restriction and food intake disorder. No, avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. (laughs) It's a lot. That's why we call it ARFID. And really that is your, it looks like anorexia nervosa with the weight loss and the food refusal, except the reason behind it isn't body image, desire to lose weight, fear of weight gain. It's any other reason. So I choked on a hot dog and now I'm so scared that I'm going to choke again, I won't eat. Or I had really bad Crohn's disease. And even though my Crohn's is now under control, I'm so scared to get another flare, I won't eat. Those kinds of things. Or I have severe OCD and I'm afraid I'm going to get sick. All of that goes under ARFID. So even though that's more specific, that is in itself a um, pretty big category. And then orthorexia is a term that we use to really describe um, somebody who isn't necessarily diagnosed with an eating disorder, but it's what we would call a health nut. Everyone knows them, everyone has one in their life for two or three that are focused on going to the gym and eating the exact correct number of calories and grams of protein and carbs, very strict, lots and lots of food rules lots of um, body rules about exercise. So it's when you take what most people would consider healthy and then take it to the extreme, that's called orthorexia. 
That sounds like something that we're supposed to aspire to. Like yeah. are we all supposed to be going to right. the gym and eating clean and, you mm-hmm. know, and it's when exactly, and I think it's really important that we've defined that for that exact reason is what we say, actually, this is not healthy. Even healthiness in the extreme is not healthy. <laughs> so moderation is is important. And I like um, to say that even moderation has to be done in moderation, but you can take health to an extreme and make it unhealthy. And now we have a term for that. Wow. In medicine, we have a word for everything. I know. (laughs) It seems like the DSM-5 is is a splitter rather than a lumper, right? Trying to get all these nuances in. Mm -hmm. And then the other one that you didn't quite mention, but I think is super important is um, atypical anorexia nervosa. And um, those of us in the eating disorder world don't particularly like that term, but the DSM-5 did specify and use that term. And what that means is that somebody has all the classic signs and symptoms and behaviors and history of anorexia nervosa, but they started out at a weight that was high for their body. And so even though they've lost a lot of weight and they've done everything that you would classify as anorexia nervosa, they're either at or above their healthy weight range. And so technically they can't be classified as anorexia nervosa. So they are called atypical. To me, it's all anorexia nervosa, but, and we would treat it the same. And we know through lots of studies that those, that population is actually just as, if not sicker than the population that has weight below their growth curves. But I think it's really important to note that anorexia doesn't discriminate. It is all body sizes, shapes, ages, races, ethnicities, genders. And so just because somebody looks like on paper that their weight is in a good place doesn't mean that they don't have an eating disorder. I think that's the the tricky one. And I'm hoping we can just kind of touch on this a little bit today, because for me, this has been a real struggle. Like, how am I supposed to help parents with feeding their kids? And how do I help kids feed themselves? And how do I give advice that isn't going to be harmful? So, you know, I know a lot of what your work is, is actually in the treatment with people that may have already been diagnosed, probably if they're coming to you as a specialist. But I wanted to make sure that we focus a lot on prevention, because I think that's where so mm-hmm. many listeners are. And what, what do you see as the role of the primary care person in preventing eating disorders in the first place? Right. And I would say just like, you know, most other illnesses, they are our first line of defense. They're the ones that are seeing these kids and following them for years and have that close connection and with the family and the child. And so I really feel that the most important thing they can do is just become aware that the disease is there, that it is very prevalent in the um, middle school, high school, college population and then be able to screen for it. And when they recognize it, be able to give them appropriate resources. I think it's a lot to ask them to be the medical treatment ongoing provider, because sometimes these kids have to be seen weekly and it's pretty intense, but being able to screen, connect them to a treatment term, treatment team. And then the other thing is because they're the first line, determine if they need an acute hospitalization at that visit. Yeah, I, I'm thinking back into my years of practice and 
you know, when we didn't have somebody in town that was a specialist. And so we were doing, you know, the, mm-hmm. the blood pressures and the, you know, the weights and, and how do we do that? And some of the counseling and the coordination. So we're grateful for you, but I know that there may be a lot of primary care folks that are out in areas where they may not have yeah. access. Now, maybe with COVID, this will be a, a game changer in terms of access to specialists far away. And I live in a, a area that does not have a lot of eating disorder facilities or treatment um, modality options for adolescents. And we are in a rural, I'm in a Kansas city, but we are surrounded by rural. So we get kids from all over. And I agree the telehealth has really helped with that. But, you know, now there are some really good resources out there that are like kind of quick, easy reads that are geared towards primary care providers. So You know, the AAP just put out a brand new eating disorder policy that is really good. That one's a little more in depth, but it's nice to have in your stack of papers if you need to do that deeper dive. But the AED, the American Eating Disorder Association, I believe is what it stands for. Is that right? Yeah. They put out something called the Purple Book. And it's a quick reference handbook guide for how do you treat eating disorders in an acute setting. So it's really good for urgent care and ED docs, but it also is really useful for primary care too, to know where to go. And then there's a couple pediatric and review articles that the AAP has that are just spot on with the the quick and dirty, here's what you need to know to get them set up. So I would recommend that everyone has a couple of those in their bank to go to. I'll make sure I put some um, links to in the show notes to those references. I'm all about like, what do I need to know? What's the down and dirty? Mm-hmm. I need to know what are the bullet points? So I'm wondering, is it the National Eating Disorder Association, NIDA? Is that um, no, um, is it a I, different one. I don't know why I'm suddenly blanking. So it's okay. <laughs> well, we'll put, we'll, we'll make sure that we get the right references because I think that's probably would be really helpful. Well, one of the things is I think there is so much worry about obesity. I'm sorry. Time out. Academy for Eating Disorders is the one who puts it out. Academy for Eating Disorders. For Eating Disorders. Mm -hmm. Okay. The NIDA website is is fantastic. It is more geared towards families. It does have some provider information though, but it's another great resource. Okay. All right. Well, we'll go back. Okay. So there's so much worry about obesity in children. And I think with the pandemic now, that's a whole nother worry, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think as pediatricians and primary care physicians, we're supposed to be the front line of preventing obesity. And we're using, you know, BMI, we have to use it for uh, health measures, for HEDIS measures. Mm -hmm. I mean, we get dinged if we don't Mm -hmm. report it. We're using growth curves. I mean, are we using them accurately? I mean, what are your thoughts on BMI? Ooh, okay. So I have a lot of thoughts on on BMI, but I think I think there's with regards to growth charts and the growth chart tools, they're really great resources and they're invaluable if they're used in the appropriate way. And I think one of the most important things that that providers need to know is really the background of how they were developed, why, and what their intentions are. I really feel that with these new BMI charts and all these measures that the intentions of them have become pretty skewed and are not, they're not being used in the correct way. So first off, the data on those growth car, car growth charts are extremely out of date. 
I know CDC updated them in 2000, but what people often don't know is that update was really for those under six. So there was no new weight for age data added after six years old. So all of that data is from 1980 or before. And even the, the younger ones, it only goes through 1994, I believe. So even the updated version is pretty out of date. Taking that in mind, the data is honestly flawed and it's biased. When you look in the paper, when they rewrote the, the growth curves, and you look at why they chose to not include the weight data for those over six with the newer data, they specifically say, and this is a quote, the inclusion of these data would have led to the underclassification of overweight because overweight cutoff criteria based on weight and BMI for age percentiles would have been shifted upward. And that completely is unacceptable in my opinion. So they basically took the scientific data that's there and said, oh no, we can't do that. That would classify people as normal weight when they're overweight. So we have to use old data. Like that doesn't fit what we want. So we just aren't going to give you that exactly. information. I mean, that, that we is, don't like what it says. That is inherent bias right there. So the growth curves are biased. Saying that, I still think that they're a really good tool to use as a screening tool. And it also really clearly states that that's the purpose of them. They are not a diagnostic tool. So we can use the BMI growth charts as long as we're looking at the trends and and taking that in the larger context of the child. What are their other health traits? But just saying that, oh, the child has a BMI of 97%, they're obese and they need to lose weight, is um, incorrect and flawed and really short-sighted. Not helpful. And then people leave the office feeling like either I'm fat or Mm -hmm. my kid's fat and I'm bad. I should do something differently. And, And that may not be helpful. And I, as a clinician, I feel super crappy. I'm like, or I feel sort of, I guess there could be almost like, well, you're not doing this right. You know, you're non-compliant. You can't mm-hmm. do it, it, There must be something to the fact that we've been trying to encourage weight loss and reaching some kind of normal weight for a million years and weight loss and weight programs don't work very well. Am I wrong on that? Well, no, I think there's tons of data out there that talks about dieting programs and yo-yo diets and how that doesn't work. And I, what I think has happened is that early on when we started having these chronic diseases, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, et cetera, the researchers were looking for why, and they saw a correlation between weight and these outcomes. And then our society has taken that combined with our internal biases and just exploded on it. And now everything is about weight. And it's really the forest has been lost in the trees. Everyone is focused on this weight when really it's not about the weight. It's about health and how you define health. Let's talk a little bit about health at every size. What, what is that and, and intuitive eating? What is that all about? What does that mean? Do other clinicians believe in this approach? I mean, is it validated? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you talk about sure. that? So we use the term HAYS in case I say that later, but it stands for health at every size. And it was originally coined by Lindo Bacon, 
and they have a wonderful resources on their website too and in a book out there. But in a nutshell, the concept is that health determines weight. Weight doesn't determine health. And it's really about honoring your body's knowledge through intuitive eating, balanced eating, joyful eating, joyful movements. It embraces body diversity. And it really is more than just this concept, but it actually goes in and includes the importance of healthy living. And so it defines healthy living very probably differently than a lot of people in our nation do. It's pretty simple and seems intuitive once you hear it. But the first step is eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. So that's what intuitive eating is really listening to your body's cues and being able to know what true hunger feels like versus emotional hunger. And when you have true hunger, how you satiate that and you do it in a plentiful, joyful, meaningful way. And then it also talks about adapting your palate to enjoy, naturally enjoy the more nutritionally based food, but still being able to enjoy all foods. So there's the concept, there is no good food, there is no bad food, there's no healthy or unhealthy, all food is just food. And if you're truly able to tap into your body's knowledge and resources of what it needs, you will naturally eat what your body needs. And guess what? Sometimes that's going to be chocolate cake and that's okay. Sometimes your body's going to need two bowls of ice cream instead of one and that's okay. But your body's also going to need fruits and vegetables and whole grains and the wide variety of, of palate out there. This is going to sound sacrilegious to a lot of people. (laughs) Like that can't be right. You can't trust, you cannot trust you. You can't trust people that they're going to know how to eat right. Well, and, and, and I would say, especially in the adult world, a lot of people don't because they haven't honored their body for years. And so that's why it's so important for those primary care doctors out there that are seeing these kids from young and moving forward, that they really educate and and have them practice these skills and trust these skills as a child. Because guess what? Children know how to do this. They are born naturally knowing how to intuitively eat. And so somewhere along the line that gets messed up through environmental factors and through through what they see and imitate and the media and the advice that the parents get. But if we let our children trust their bodies from the beginning and move them forward and have them continue that, they will be okay. It is possible to do. And a lot of people out there do it, but it's harder to do once you're 50 years old. It's much easier to start when they're three. So I just want to, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I think we push this and understand it with babies. I mean, we talk about feeding on demand. We feed them when they're hungry, not when I think they're hungry. Mm -hmm. And then we introduce complimentary foods and we let them smear it and throw Mm -hmm. it. Maybe we don't all love that. (laughs) And then we introduce some other things. And then there gets to be these kind of constrictions and meanings, like you have to finish your vegetables first, and then you get, you know, this, or, you know, that this is somehow a special food. You can only have it If you earn it, I mean, we have Mm -hmm. these, and then I'm also wondering, especially if you're a mom or dad in a larger body that like, I don't want my child to have to deal with what I have to do. So I'm going to make sure I do it differently. Right. Right. Yes. You are 100% right. And not only do we let babies 
tell us when they're hungry, but they tell us when they're full too, right? They stop. And if we force more in them, what do they do? They spit it all up and say, no, I'm done. <laughs> and, and toddlers naturally do that too. There is Ellen Satter is an excellent, excellent resource. And she has a lot of stuff out there about how parents can foster and promote this intuitive eating throughout all stages of childhood. But one of her theories is you, when you are plating their food, and if it's before they're able to plate, you put the cookie that they're going to have, say that you guys are having cookies for dessert, you put it on the plate with the rest of the food. Every single night, the cookie goes on the plate with the vegetable, with the protein, with the grain. And because you normalize it, then it's just a cookie, just like it is a, a broccoli. Like you can eat it before, after, during, but this is what you're getting as part of your meal. And over time, when you do that consistently, sometimes the kids eat the cookie first. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't eat it at all because it has just become part of that overall intuitive eating process. How can that be true? I mean, so, I mean, it's so hard to think of like, well, they're going to eat the cookies and then they're not going to want anything else. And then I failed. Right. But you know what? If your kid eats a cookie first before the rest of their meal, you haven't failed. You've just allowed them to explore what their body needs and not needs. It's just like if you want your kid to be able to go down a slide and you go up there with them and they're too scared and they don't go, and then you guys climb back down instead, you haven't failed. You've actually made a step towards getting them to know what is their boundaries and what they can and can't do. That was a success, right? And next time you do it, maybe they'll go down with you holding their hand. It's the same concept. Sometimes they might eat the cookie first for the first two weeks because it's new and it's enjoyable, but then they'll start to understand if the cookie is always there, It's no longer this prize or this possession or this like special treat. It's just part of the meal. And so then they'll respect their palate and their nutritional needs and it will vary. And that's okay. Wow. I, I wish that as a parent and a patient that I could come to somebody like you and have you say all these things that would just be, I think as a parent, like such a relief like, really, I can do that and it's mm-hmm. going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And and as a teenager, I mean, I know I've sat with lots of particularly that kind of pubertal 12 to 14 year old and, and thinking girls, but boys too, that, you know, their body's changing size. They've got, you know, new fat that's in different places and they're freaked out. And to say, you know, it's going to be okay. You know, your body's finding its place. And But, you know, we also have this whole thing about what it's in an ideal weight that we're supposed to be at the 50th percentile and we're not going to all live there. Right. Right. Yeah. And if you think about going back to those growth curves, it's the growth curves are normalized bell curve. So by definition, everyone's not at the 50th percentile. If everyone was, we'd only have one curve on there. Right. But we don't. We have a spectrum of curves and two standard deviations is going up to the 95th percentile. And so if by definition, somebody has to be at that 95th percentile and that 99th percentile, otherwise the curves wouldn't exist. Like it's not possible if you understand how a normal distribution curve works. Zero to a hundred is normal. So what's really important is figuring out what's normal for that child. So is the child somebody 
who has been tracking along that 85th percentile their whole life, well, guess what? That's where they belong. They're, they're just on the outer edges of those standard deviations. And that's okay. If it's a child that's been tracking at like 50, 60th percentile, and then is continues to rise and continues to rise. And over a few years, they're at 95th percentile, not making any change. Well, then that's different. That is something that would have some potential health risks associated with it. But if they've always lived there, it's okay. One analogy I really like to use is with dogs. And so we love all dogs, right? We love all shapes and sizes. We love the mastiffs that we can hug and snuggle and cuddle with. And we love the little poodles that we can hold in our hand and feel their soft fur. But never do we ever say a mastiff needs to look like a poodle. And never do we ever say a mini pin needs to look like a German shepherd. That sounds ridiculous to us. So why would we ever do that with our own human bodies? And if you try to make a mastiff look like a little poodle, it's never going to look like a little poodle, no matter how much it tries, because it's just not the way it's built. Wow. And so being able to embrace that diversity with our own bodies and our own culture, just like we do with little dogs would be fantastic. I feel like what you're saying is revolutionary. <laughs> oh my God. I wish that there was a course that was an all day thing. And you start out with, you know, a baby and how do we guide them and use different language? And what does that mean? Because this is not what most of us believe we're supposed to do. I just, I mean, I think we believe we're supposed to keep kids from being too fat, mm -hmm. maybe too thin. If they're infants, we worry a lot about, you know, is this child starving? But some kids are just super tiny and their parents are tiny and we don't get mad at them about that. Right. If we know that they're, you know, have nutrition. I mean, if they're malnourished, that's different. But man, we're just like, yeah. for people that are in larger bodies, we kind of beat up on them. We really do. And it's really unfortunate. And I want to also circling back around a little bit, but with those growth curves, the way that they normalize the data, and they say this in their limitations, that the further you get away from the 50th percentile, the less accurate the curve is. And so even if you try to keep them on a curve that looks like the growth growth curves at that 90, 95th percentile, their curve might look different. And it doesn't mean that they're doing anything wrong or they're abnormal. It just means our data is skewed and limited and might not accurately represent things. Okay. I, I Yeah. There's just a lot of what you're saying that I think is so amazing. And I wish that we could package this up so that we all could take a sigh of relief and just say, let's talk about what your child might need and what that might look like. And, you know, take the struggles out of eating and, you know, and also it would also, I don't know, I wish adults could hear this. Like maybe you're just destined to be in a bigger body. I mean, if you're 5'10 yeah. and weigh 180, maybe that's just where you're supposed to live. And I mean, I guess I think what a lot of physicians worry about is if I don't pay attention to obesity, by whatever definition that you use, those kids are going to become diabetic or have fatty liver disease. And I failed them. Right. Right. What about that? What about that fear that if I don't address this, they're going to have disease. So I'm going to pose a question. 
and I'm going to put out a concept. What if we were treating these, all of our kids and our primary care practice and doing our well visits, and we utilized every tool we had except for weight? What if we never weighed a child? Would we still catch those things? Would we still be able to prevent pre-diabetes and diabetes and heart disease and early strokes and um, all those things that you see in the adult population? And obviously, I don't have an evidence-based answer because that's not what we do. But I like to think that, yes, we could easily do that because we have so many other markers at our hands. And so by not weighing them forces us to look at that bigger picture and use those markers in the way they're intended to be. Now, I think that's really kind of, that's, that's an extreme case, right? I'm, I'm pushing the limits there and that's not going to happen. But the concept is let's use weight as just one tool out of many to come up with our overall assessment. So let me pose a question to you. I'm in my practice and I've got a well child visit and I've got an eight-year-old and they look heavier to me, you know, chubby, whatever the words you want to use. And I weigh them and they're at the, I don't know what percentile, something that I, I mean, it's not like I have to weigh them to know that they're in a bigger body, mm -hmm. right? I can mm -hmm. tell. <laughs> yep. So if I didn't, if I wasn't focused on the weight, but I want to make sure that I'm tracking those things and avoiding, you know, those other diseases, what would I do differently if I wasn't just thinking about weight? Yeah. So have they always been in this bigger body? Assuming that you've been, you've been tracking these kids that you've been with this child their full eight years, right? I gave birth to an 11 pound baby and guess what? <laughs> He's always going to be bigger. And so my pediatrician knows that and that that's just his body doesn't mean he's not healthy. So having that knowledge without even weighing, like you said, you can, you can see if they are growing as a typical. So when we go to med school, the number one thing they say is learn what normal is because otherwise you can't know abnormal. So is this normal for them? And then all of the other components that make up health. Is this child moving their body appropriately? Are they getting adequate um, exercise or are they sitting in front of the TV for hours and hours a day? What kinds of foods are they eating? Are they eating soda and candy all day or are they having a balanced meal and respecting their palate and their nutrition and getting in fruits, vegetables, grains, dairies, proteins? So if you can go down that checklist, they're nutritionally sound, they're appropriately active, they're listening to their hunger cues, their body is, is similar to how it has been their entire life, then I would say they're doing okay. And then, you know, we also have guidelines that you are checking labs at certain points in, in time to try to catch those genetic um, dispositions that might cause somebody to have earlier high lipids, etc. So there's safety checks in there as well. Yeah, that, that's, I almost wonder if like parents could use like a cup image for their kids, like as they're eating dinner, like, where's your cup? You know, is your cup half full? Is it, do you still, you know, would you like an extra serving? You know, where's your cup? That would be a whole different way of looking than clean your plate or you didn't eat enough of X, mm -hmm. Y, and Z. And I, I'm going to challenge that and say that I would like to take it one step further. And if you do follow that Ellen Satter method, 
she promotes having kids start plating their own food as early as possible. So really like three, four, they start plating their own food. And what you will see is that initially they'll completely overplate because it's fun to fill your entire plate up with a thing of peas, right? But over time, they start to learn how much their body needs and they plate what they need. And so if you start that when they're younger, you shouldn't be in that scenario where you have to try to say, do you need more or not? Because they naturally mm. have incorporated it. Okay. Okay. I, I thank you for clarifying that. I like that. But a lot of people haven't, obviously, and they're like, well, too late for me. I've got this eight-year-old. What do I do? Um, There are scales out there. I use use one with my kids that's um, a little pea pod, and it's got ouchy hungry to ouchy full on it, and it's got the little pictures and faces of what ouchy hungry and ouchy full and everything in between looks like. And so they, he, he can kind of look at that and say, I'm right here. And then we could figure out what to do about that. Huh. Is that a, is that a thing? Is that something you made up yourself? I Googled it. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll put that link in too. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Well, I do think that, you know, as adults, I mean, I know I've certainly had this thought in my head and I've probably told parents and, you know, like just don't have the food in your house because, you know, if I had a package of Oreos, I'm going to eat the whole thing because I have no control. And I think if we thought I have this package of Oreo cookies, I could eat 30 of them. My stomach might hurt, but I don't, I, I really only want one right now that the reality is maybe that would work, but I don't think we trust ourselves that we're just not going to like go crazy. Right. And that's valid. And it's because of so many years of learning the wrong way. And so in order to expect that you're going to immediately get it right the first time and be successful is unrealistic. If it took you 30 years to learn these habits, it's going to take a long time for you to unlearn them. And part of unlearning is experiencing and trialing. So you get that package of Oreos and you stuff your face and you, and you eat all of them within two hours and you feel sick. And then you reflect on that and say, okay, that probably was not what my body means. What could I do differently? And this is where if you really do have food issues as an adult, that you probably need some professional help with a nutritionist or a therapist that is haze informed to help you through that thought process. But eventually you get to the point of you determine what your body needs before you eat the Oreos, not after, but it is a process and people need to understand and give themselves grace and forgiveness to go through that process. That's kind. I I was going to say the two podcasts that will follow yours are with someone that talks about coaching individuals and also a nutritionist. So, and really it's the same theme, honestly. And okay. So what do we do to convince clinicians that this stuff could be true? I mean, is we're going to have to do something that's, you know, evidence-based because that's where we live. Mm -hmm. So what do you do about that? What's the research going to look like? That's a great question. Um, I think one of the biggest problems in in our world is that all the money goes towards obesity research, and there's hardly any that goes towards disordered eating research. It's very hard to find funding to get the evidence that you need to convince the people. So we rely a lot on the other disciplines, like I said, like the nutritionist and the physical therapist and the therapist and their areas of research to extrapolate into what to do in the medical field. But 
you're spot on. It's hard and there's not a lot out there. There's more out there for the younger children. And um, I'm not quite as informed on all the details because that's not the population I treat. But, you know, infant through grade school, there's definitely a lot more out there. But when you get to the adolescence and you get to eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia, it's minimal at best. So I would encourage anybody to that that feels right to them and that feels this is a passion to figure out how they can advocate um, for more research and how can they contribute and even be involved. Reach out. I'm wondering too, I mean, as a primary care person who, you know, d- devoted my life to prevention and helping people with development and that quote, knowing what normal is, but that we could prevent so much stuff if we were able to take a different tact, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And I mean, is it possible that some of the things that we say or do maybe don't cause eating disorders, but might contribute to or, you know, not be helpful? I mean, yeah. is that possible that we're part of the problem? I see it all the time and it's good intended advice and it's good intentions. And I recognize that you only know what you know. So if the world is focused on obesity and preventing the complications associated with that, and you're getting reimbursed for it, naturally, that's what you do. And that's not anyone's fault. But I encourage you to become educated with the Hayes approach and with the Ellen Satter approach and look up Lindo Bacon's website. Those two approaches are evidence-based and their research papers that they use and the evidence they use is listed on their website. So you can easily access that for free. But you can't make change if you don't know that change needs to be made. So just being aware of what you're saying and the potential outcomes of that is the first step. And then once you recognize it, how could you do it better? And that's through going through some of that education. But I would say one of the biggest things that I hear is they say, well, I was, I thought I was fine, but then the pediatrician told me that I needed to lose weight or that I was fat or that I'm going to get diabetes. And I'm pretty sure that's not exactly how the pediatrician says it. But it doesn't matter because that's what the 11 year old brain hears. They're black and white. You know, the pediatrician might talk about statistics and outcomes and long term effects. All the kid hears is, my doctor says I'm fat. Absolutely. And then you've got this eating disorder. So also being very aware of what you say and who you say it to, because it might not be appropriate to have that conversation with the 11 year old in the room because they're not going to be able to interpret it correctly. Yeah, I go back to my very first podcast I did with my daughter who um, struggled with binge eating and bulimia and, you know, years of dieting. And we called it Words Matter and talked about how, you know, even now, you know, going to a doctor's office because her BMI fell in the overweight range, she got a handout in the after visit summary that said that for a snack, she should have two carrots and a teaspoon of Mm -hmm. peanut butter. And Mm -hmm. she was just like, she said, if I wasn't in recovery from my eating disorder, this would have been a trigger for me. Yeah. And, and And we didn't mean to, we thought we were being helpful. Yeah, exactly. And think about those kids that haven't developed the eating disorder yet, but they're told that they can't have the birthday cake that all their friends do just because they have a certain body type. Yeah. Um, That they need to not be able to experience the fun of a slushy because they have a certain body type. Right. And they get it from everybody else. Wouldn't it be nice if we don't, if we're not part of that, that 
you know, that messaging that like something's wrong with the way you are and our job is to change it, you know, to make you not the, you know, great Dane, but to make you the Chihuahua. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that analogy. That is just such a visual. I mean, a lot of people are going to argue with why that's not, you know, it's just not the same thing, but it's, it's a concept and analogy to be able to relate. It's obviously not a human body, but let them argue. (laughs) What about, so I know that in talking with several of my friends that are psychiatrists and in the inpatient world that during the pandemic, that there's been a huge increase in hospitalizations for patients mm-hmm. with eating disorders. What, what's that about? I mean, what do you think? It is definitely true. And we're currently doing some multi-site studies right now to show that in evidence and statistical form. But I think, I think there's a couple of different things that happen. I think, as we all know, with the pandemic, mental health disorders skyrocketed. And so we had increased rate of all mental health disorders, anxiety, depression, OCD, suicide, and suicidal ideation, et cetera. So eating disorders falls underneath that. We also know that with all of those mental health disorders, there is a component of eating as part of the diagnostic criteria. So what we've also seen is a lot of disordered eating secondary to the mental health complications. And so their disordered eating might be really coming from their severe depression, but once they've not eaten enough, then your brain goes into that starvation mode. And then you start becoming overly focused on your body and it looks like an eating disorder. But when you do your deep dive and you really realize that depression was the underlying cause. So I think we're getting a greater incident from that. I also think that there are eating disorders that were there all along that didn't get noticed until all of a sudden everyone had to stay at home and the parents are watching their kid eat every day, all day and noticing, "Mm, this isn't right. Or this isn't normal for my kid to be doing 12 hours of exercise and not be able to sit down. And so we've all stopped and paused and watched. And so things are getting recognized that I don't think would have gotten recognized before. Unfortunately, I was just going to say, do you think, I'm wondering too, with the whole pandemic, the two things, one isolation, you know, loss of our social supports Mm -hmm. and also loss of control. Yes. And I know sometimes anorexia, maybe I have this wrong, but it's sort of a, can be a control. Like I don't have control over anything else, but I can control what I eat or don't eat. Do you think that plays any part in this? You are spot on. The classic story that I've been hearing for the last year and plus has been, well, I decided I want to become healthy. And so I started eating some um, less sweets and everything was fine. And then the pandemic hit and I didn't have all those other social things. And so my whole focus became on controlling my diet because that was something I was good at and I was already started. And so it goes from possibly really positive health changes to extreme unhealthy health changes. And when you don't have all those other checks and balances and social connection to keep you informed with what's normal and what's not, and peers compare, teens compare themselves, right? They need that peer conformity. And now it's gone. They say, oh, this is what I can control. This is what I'm good at. I'm going to keep doing it. Or they say, 
wow, like this feels wrong. This feels yucky. I have no control. I'm so worried. All my friends are going to get sick. We're going to die. What can I control? Oh, I can control what I put in my mouth. I can control how I move my body. And you put that with the genetic predisposition to have mental health disorders or eating disorders and poof, you've just got that perfect scenario. I'm wondering if the parts of our brain that have to do with satiety and pleasure, all mishmash in there with mood and, you know, it's, it's all, it's all connected, right? Our oh, yeah, minds, right. Our bodies. We know that you get um, dopamine hits when you have a lot of sugar. We know that you increase your serotonin levels when you exercise, especially outside. And so they're also, they're also just the body trying to find a way to cope in this big traumatic component of the world right now. We all just want a little relief, right? Yeah. When is it going to end? When can we be normal? When do we, mm-hmm. when do we masks become a thing that we just, Oh yeah. Remember back when the pandemic right. was here, we get to move on. Well, this has been so great. And again, I wish we could package this up for clinicians that take care of kids to say, we could do this differently, you know, just kind of pose. What if, what if we said something different about food? What would that be like? What would it feel like as a clinician to be, you know, this positive about the joy of food, not the fear. I mean, it just makes me relieved to hear you say the words. (laughs) If you were a lot of work, it's a lot of work. I'm not going to say it's just this quick, easy fix, but Oh, well, I'm so glad that you're out there in the world doing this. I wish there were more of you. If if you had to go back and talk to yourself as a resident or med student, would you, what advice would you give yourself? Um, I think if I had to do that, I would, I would say to pay more attention to all the other disciplines, learn from them, study beyond what interests you because you really have your whole career to become an expert in your field, but you may only get one shot to learn about something outside your field. And that additional experience might be what saves a life. So take advantage of the depth and the breadth of learning that you get from other focuses within medicine, as well as other disciplines like the nutritionist, therapist, physical therapist, et cetera. You can learn a lot from them. Sounds like be curious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the work you're doing. And, you know, again, I wish that there was a a bigger meeting of the minds to maybe hassle this stuff out in some other dialogue, you know, on the big stage, because I think there are folks that are coming from the obesity prevention work that this would be a, this is going to be a hard message for them. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're also having kids that are in the eating disorder world. And what if, what if we should be doing something differently that maybe this other isn't helpful? I mean, I get there are going to be some kids with type two diabetes and maybe we need to look at that differently. I, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but it feels like that we need to be more curious about yeah, is what we're doing really helpful. And the obesity world, the Hayes approach is for everybody. And so there are haze-informed clinicians out there that work with those in larger bodies. And I would encourage you to seek out those and, and make a good list of your local community ones that do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, is there a national resource that, like if somebody was looking for a haze-informed therapist or nutritionist, is there some kind of national list or website? Um, 
Yeah. So there's a couple different, I think I, I, Lindo Bacons might have some, but the NIDA website will have ways to find clinicians. And even though it's eating disorder focused, most of those clinicians do a, a variety of treatments. And so you'll get a Hayes informed clinician to do other things. And then the other society we have is IADEP, which is International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. And you can look for a potential local chapter or the nationwide website, and they will have they will have the people listed on there that practice a Hayes approach. Okay. Well, great. And I'll make sure that I get all the information so we can put links for people who want to read more and know more. I, yeah. I kind of close my podcast with, you know, the Maya Angelou, if you know better, you can do better. And I think that this is a perfect example about, you know, just knowing better, maybe just even the entertainment of the thought, like maybe there is something else I could say or do. Maybe I could just take a baby step with, you know, maybe it's that toddler group. Maybe I just start there and it's possible. Change is possible. Well, thank you again for your time today. I so appreciate it. And I appreciate you. It was happy. I'm happy to be here. It was a great time. Thank you. I loved this conversation with Dr. Voss because I think it really calls into question how we think about children's eating, weight, obesity, and all the things that have to do with eating disorders and prevention and just kind of mixed messages that we may get about what is best for kids. So here are my takeaways. Number one, the DSM-5 diagnostic categories for eating disorders include the familiar anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, which I think we all know the definitions of those, but it was expanded to also include binge eating disorders and some less familiar ones, including atypical anorexia nervosa, which has all the symptoms of anorexia nervosa, but the weight falls in the, quote, normal BMI, end quote, uh, range, and orthorexia, which is an obsessive focus on healthy eating with excessive food rules where weight loss may occur, but it's not the primary focus. And AFRID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that occurs with weight loss as a result of fear of foods, eating, swallowing, etc. Sometimes this follows a choking episode, and I've seen several of these kids, and it can be pretty dramatic. Number two, primary care providers are in an ideal position for ED prevention. Our unique longitudinal relationships that we have with our families and with our kids builds trust, and we have the luxury of watching their growth trajectory over time, and, and that trend is what's really important. Number three, the PCP may not need to directly treat eating disorders, but an awareness of the prevalence and the presentation, screening tools, and resources are in our wheelhouse. And I think it really, the onus is on us to find our partners that can help us with management of eating disorders. Number four, rethink BMI. Remember, it is a bell curve and it's normal then for children to be on both ends of the spectrum. It's, it's not realistic to expect that all children are going to be at the 50th percentile. And we need to embrace the diversity of size. Dr. Voss gave the example of dogs, which I know some people may 
not like that description, but she said, you know, we would never wish for a chihuahua to be in a Labrador body. Kind of an interesting perspective that I think it's worth thinking about. Number five, CDC weight guidelines that are on our growth charts were revised for the under six population in 2000, but for over six, the last revision was in the 1980s. That's food for thought as we look at those perhaps outdated views of the size we are. We all know that, you know, if we go back into the early 1900s, people were smaller and we are taller and perhaps heavier. And I think we need to look at what that means for kids today. Number six, consider genetics and the trend in growth versus an absolute number. I think this is really important when we're looking at those BMIs that are in the higher percentiles and how we focus on that. She talked about, you know, if a kid is always in those upper percentiles, that may be where they live. However, if there are big changes, you know, what's going on? And that's important that we look at that. Number seven, it is not just about weight, but rather what are the health parameters for the child and teen? And then she asked this question, and it's a provocative one. What if we utilized all tools as if we didn't use weight as the driver? For me, this was a drop the, mo- drop the mic moment. Number eight, if we just focus on weight as a risk factor for disease, we may miss children and teens in the, quote, normal range. You know, a teen that's in the 50th percentile on the BMI may have an eating disorder. So we have to keep that in mind when there have been big changes in weight. Number nine, consider the health at every size concept. This was coined by Linda Bacon. And here are the, the kind of the tenets of that. Accept your size, trust yourself, adopt healthy lifestyle habits, which include eat when hungry, stop when full, tailor taste to enjoy nutritious foods, exercise through joyful movement, embrace size diversity. Now, what it doesn't mean is that everyone who's in a larger body is healthy, just like everyone who's in a smaller body may not be healthy. It does not say that everyone is currently living in their natural body state. Many people are at higher weights than would be expected given their history and many below. But how do you know who is who? You should stop focusing on the number on the scale and start focusing on positive health changes. I think this is a paradigm shift and a challenge to some of our accepted thoughts. Number 10. So what's the advice that we can share with families? Set a good example. And children are learning by watching us. They're listening to what we're saying and they're imitating what we do. Take care of and respect your own body. Eliminate diet talk weight bias comments, and associating good and bad qualities of foods in front of kids. Work on intuitive eating with your children and make it a family activity at each meal to really enjoy the food and make it a fun experience. And get help if you have your own disordered eating patterns. And we know that lots of us who are adults have struggled with body image and dieting for years and years. And then finally, make sitting down at an actual table without technology, make that a real thing. Start weekly and then add as you can. 
Number 11, Dr. Voss mentioned many resources that may be helpful to you, including the AAP Policy Statement on Eating Disorders, the Purple Book, the Academy for Eating Disorders, the National Eating Disorder Association, which has lots of resources for families, the Health at Every Size and Intuitive Eating books, and Ellen Satter's work. And the links to all of these resources are in the show notes. And stay tuned to the next upcoming podcasts for more of what to put on your plate and on recovery coaching. Thanks so much for listening. And, and again, I hope that this is just something to consider and maybe take one piece of this and think about what really matters to a child's health, not just their size, and maybe not just your size either. You know, we have to be kind to our bodies, and it's a journey. It isn't an immediate thing, particularly because we live in a weight-focused diet culture that shames those in larger bodies. Thank you so much for listening and for all you do. Hope you'll tune in next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.